Well, all right. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Playware, P-L-A-A, Play. Go to PressPlay.com to learn more. It's more than fashion. It's a feeling. That's PressPlay, P-L-A-A.com. Follow the show on Instagram at Here Comes the Pain Pod. That's at Here Comes the Pain P-O-D. Follow me on Twitter at P-A-Y-N-E-D-C. That's at Payne D-C. Friends, I'm back. Have not had a conversation here for a little bit. Been watching what's going on throughout the summer. I know here in the D.C. area, it's starting to become a long, hot summer. And everybody's back outside. And that's that's wonderful as COVID rates keep dropping. I know we're watching out for the Delta variant, but... I think overall people are feeling optimistic about the trajectory that uh, COVID vaccinations were on and feeling good about the fact that outside is open again. And I know I'm one of those folks. So um, certainly been enjoying myself, but been watching what's going on in the political world and figured I'd spark up the microphone again and have another conversation with you all. Wanted to talk this week in this episode in particular about What's been happening in and around the orbit of Vice President Kamala Harris? Um, Of course, we're at about the six-month mark of the Biden-Harris administration. And as with many administrations, there's a honeymoon period that the public and the press extends to uh, incoming elected officials in those positions. There's a coronation when you have a new president and a new vice president. But there's a point where the new car smell wears off. And I think we're certainly at that point, uh, particularly related to the vice president. There's been some reports that we'll get into that we'll actually talk about in particular related to her staff, the leadership of her staff, her public image, the the issues that she's taken on. And there's really a lot to unpack there. So I kind of want to take them on one at a time. So why don't we start with where this week started with some of the reports related to the chief of staff of Vice President Harris and some of the complaints that were coming from people in and around her orbit. I want to read out a couple of stories here just to kind of set up what we're going to discuss and maybe give a little bit of context. Uh, Brian Schwartz of CNBC, who's a you know great reporter, um, put out a tweet earlier this week that talked about complaints that was coming to the direction of the vice president and her team related to uh, kind of the tactics and the approach of the vice president's chief of staff, a woman named Tina Flournoy, who is a very, very well-respected democratic, I guess you might call not really a strategist, more like a democratic operative, someone who's deeply experienced, who's worked um, in and around the Clinton administration and their operation for a long time. Someone who's a close associate of Bill Clinton um, and just someone who's just really highly respected and highly thought of. Um, and, you know, the, the guts of Brian's tweet was about how Miss um, Flournoy uh, was really uh, exhibiting kind of an iron fist related to access to the vice president. Um, you know, the article kind of derisively pointed out how she was behaving as a gatekeeper and how that was irritating people who are trying to get access to the vice president. And look, as, as you might imagine, predictably, um, you know, my favorite, so I, I have all these kind of subcategories of Twitter. One of my favorite subcategories of Twitter is, um, you know, uh, political defense Twitter, 
when you see a story that comes out and then like all of the friends and all of the uh, kind of uh, associates of someone who might be in the crosshairs of a bad story when that when when they kind of come to the fore and, and you know kind of Avenger style uh, start to defend uh, the honor of anyone who might uh, get some collateral damage and look certainly a lot of people came to the defense of Miss Flournoy um, and I would say her career by the way suggests that she deserved that defense but um, you saw a lot of very high profile Democrats come out and kind of say what gives of course she's the chief of staff to the vice president She's going to restrict access. You had people who had served in that position before and in similar positions like Stephanie Cutter and Jim Palmieri, um, some of these folks who I've had a chance to work with, um, too, uh, Mignon Moore, who came out in really kind of aggressive defense of Ms. Flournoy and I think overall kind of of the operation around the vice president. And look, I think you would have to say, um, I think that story, um, I don't know if Brian's intention was to just share news or to kind of... Uh, create a storyline, but I will say, look, the, the, if, if the story there, which it appears to be, the guts of the story was about how she was a gatekeeper to the vice president, like, then it, it's kind of a dog bites man headline. I mean, that's what a chief of staff exists for. Um, as you can imagine, when you take on a position like the vice presidency, um, you're going to have a lot of people who are trying to get to you, to try to get in your orbit, um, trying to get information to you, trying to sway your opinion. Um, it is the job of good staff to keep people um, from, um, you know, being a fly in the ointment and also to make sure that the operation stays focused and that there's a standard and there's some discipline. Um, so, like, that was the first story. And I think that that, uh, that, that started out the week kind of in this place where I think um, a lot of uh, kind of Harris defenders kind of had their back up. I got the sense that whomever was trying to craft that first story, um, because look, I mean, let's just peel back the layer here. There's obviously people who had an interest in putting this information out there. Um, I think they kind of maybe missed the mark with that first uh, tweet that came out from Brian. <clears throat> Excuse me. So then there was a second story, maybe about a day later in Politico, that I think was kind of the big expose that... Um, you know, you, you might typically see when someone's trying to execute a takedown um, of an entire culture, an entire office. And that certainly is what happened with this political story. The title being, quote, not a healthy environment. And then the subhead reads Kamala Harris's office rife with dissent. There is dysfunction inside the VP's office and aides and administration officials say, and it's emanating from the top. So. Um, this story is much more, you know, kind of, I would say more thoroughly comprehensively reported out story, not just related to Miss Flournoy. And I think they're certainly maybe advancing kind of the idea of he, her being kind of this stern gatekeeper. Um, but there was a little bit more there. There was more about, um, how there are people who couldn't get access to her, um, people who are former donors and bundlers and, you know, look, for folks who may not spend a lot of time um, thinking about access to government officials and thinking about, hey, is it important that donors and supporters and bundlers get access to them? I, I think any any political operative worth their salt, particularly in a chief of staff position, would say, yes, that that that's important. Um, I think it, it, it is important to manage that process. But I think. Um, there has to be some reasonable access you're giving to the to the folks who 
feel like they are very responsible for them being there. But that that wasn't the, the guts of it. Really, um, this was about, um, you know, kind of reported out, you know, staff feeling unhappy, low morale um, with some of the, the descriptions that was used. I actually want to read a couple of uh, parts of this story just to give you a sense of... Uh, of, of what what the core of the reporting was here. Let me read this again. This is from the political story from uh, uh, June 30th earlier this week. For days, aides and al- outside allies had been calling and texting with each other about the fol- political fallout about the potential trip w- would entail. This trip, of course, being uh, the vice president's trip to the border, uh, coming after an earlier trip to Guatemala where she took some criticism because she hadn't gone to the U.S. border yet. And so they set up a follow-up trip to the border um, of the United States with uh, Secretary Mayorkas, who is the DHS secretary, um, and some other officials. And uh, this piece is talking about some of the concerns related to that. I'll continue reading. But when it became known that she was going to El Paso, it left many scrambling, including officials who were responsible for making travel arrangements and others outside the VP's office charged with crafting the message across the administration. So just read that very carefully. It tells you a lot, right? It tells you about there's this, the idea is uh, whoever is framing this story, and that's in the form of sources that is giving this access and this information to these reporters. They're trying to tell a story of chaos. They're also, they're also kind of telling you where the complaints are coming from. It says, um, including officials who are responsible for making travel arrangements and others outside the VP's office. So... That kind of tells you right there, like, okay, this is about maybe some people who are on the vice president's traveling team. And I point that out in particular because some of the reporting talked about how former advance officials who worked with the vice president's team were recently let go or recently left. I mean, you can start to kind of piece this together, right, that these are cranky staff and how some of them had already left. Some of them are planning on leaving. Um, but it, again, just as a comms guy and as someone who has been a source on the record, off the record for a lot of stories, who has pushed back on a lot of stories, who's crafted a lot of stories, like this is the type of stuff you look for. Um, and then also, um, others outside the vice president's office charged with crafting messaging across the administration. Um, I mean, that kind of sounds to me like some people close to the president's team, um, at the white house, um, who obviously they're all on the same team working for the president. And the vice president, but there is a distinct operation that works directly with the president and a distinct operation that works directly with the vice president. So that's interesting to me because that suggests that some of this sourcing is coming from people close to the president's team, which might talk a little bit about, you know, some concern related to harmony um, inside the Biden-Harris administration overall. And I think, obviously, this is the type of stuff that leads to people uh, focusing on palace intrigue. I want to read a little bit more. In interviews, 22 current and former vice presidential aides, administration officials, and associates of Harris and Biden describe a tense and, at times, dour office atmosphere. Aides and allies said Flournoy, in an apparent effort to protect Harris, has instead created an insular environment where ideas are met or ignored uh, or or ignored or met with harsh dismissals and decisions are dragged out. Often, they said, she refuses to take responsibility for delicate issues and blames staffers for negative results that ensue. 
So, one, continuing to put Miss Flournoy in the crosshairs here, um, and then also um, kind of trying to point the finger of blame at the vice president, suggesting that she is throwing staffers under the bus and pitting staffers against each other. Um, this is rough. This is this is a this is a rough this is a rough story. And I mean, I'm not going to read every line of it word for word, but it really creates the impression that there is not a lot of harmony inside the vice president's orbit. Um, and it creates the impression that um, this is a pretty toxic um, world of staffers. And just if you look at the reporting on the vice president before her time um, in the administration, when she was candidate Harris, when she was vice presidential candidate Harris, um, when she was Senator Harris, and when she was Senate candidate Harris, there are like three or four different orbits of people and, and groups of people who have supported her and who have supported um, her different efforts to, to you know, be in elected office and to run for elected office. And there have all been some measure of this type of story that's been told. And that's what makes this a real toxic brew for the vice president right now because it continues a storyline that there is a problem and there is high staff turnover and there is a lot of staff dissension on her teams. Um, and we can get into that. There's a lot to unpack there about why that story is being told, how it's being told, the lens that it's being told, and the implications that it makes. So you've got this political story. And then just one last story that I want to read from and I want to frame back and maybe give my take and give some things that jump out to me. There was a Los Angeles Times story <clears throat> excuse me, that um, was posted on July 2nd. And that story, um, the headline for that story is Kamala Harris isn't getting any honeymoon and some Democrats are fretting. And this starts to focus on how the vice president, of course, um, was chosen um, as the running mate of a then 77-year-old Joe Biden who went on to become the oldest elected president we've ever had with the obvious... Um, you know, idea being that pres now President Biden, then candidate Biden, would help mold and help position then VP candidate Harris to become the next leader of the Democratic Party and to potentially run either in 2024 or 2028 to uh, kind of carry on the mantle of what the president um, was able to accomplish in either four or eight years. Um, so the idea being that the president, now President Biden, could set this up in a way where Vice President Harris um, could build kind of a political movement from within the White House as the vice president that would allow her to kind of take the mantle and run with it when the president was ready to step aside. And this story really talks about how, um, you know, kind of the uneven rollout and uneven is the word I would use, I think. Some people might use more hyperbolic words. I would just say uneven, which is like that that's that happens. Um, she's not the only public official that's ever had these types of issues. Um, some people in the past may have said uneven things related to now President Biden at different points. Um, but anyways, uneven is the word that I use to describe the rollout for her and for her team um, over the past uh, six months as they have stepped into this role, by the way. Um, historically unprecedented role. It's the first woman and first woman of color vice president. But this story talks about now there's a lot of concern among, you know, Democrats, named Democrats, 
people who are kind of party king and queen makers, um, you know, probably donor class, but also pundit, consultant class, um, Democrats about, hey, is this really the person that can like carry on the, the mantle of the party? Can, can Vice President Harris really be the standard bearer of the party? Um, and this cast some doubt on it. And just to read a little bit from this story, um, just want to read a quote here from former um, Obama um, administration um, senior uh, strategist and senior official um, advisor to the White House, David Axelrod, um, who ran President Obama's um, multiple campaigns. And one of the quotes here reads, just in terms of the public facing stuff, it hasn't been a stellar six months, said Axelrod. You have limited opportunities to play the featured actor, he added. Mostly you're playing a supporter role. So if something goes wrong during those limited opportunities, they are magnified. And then, and I think importantly, I think the article does put some context around this. And I think responsible reporting has put this context out there. Um, One part of the article reads, Harris, as a black and Asian woman, also is subject to racial and gender prejudice that neither Biden nor her predecessors faced. Women in public or private jobs, especially women of color, are often judged more harshly and held to higher standards than white male colleagues in high-level positions. Okay, friends. Um, and there's a lot more story here to, to read, but um, I think you get the point. This week was the week that the dam broke on um, you know, Vice President Harris and kind of the, the public image related to... Um, you know, how she is being positioned, um, how she's being viewed both publicly among voters, um, publicly among um, other influencers, but but also really within the administration. And um, there's a lot I take away from this. There's a couple of topics I want to talk about here. I think there's the um, kind of palace intrigue nature of some of the reporting and, and, and what the implications are of that. I have this idea also about how Vice President Harris really is a zag historically to who our vice presidents tend to be. There's some obvious elements of that, but there's some less obvious elements of that that I also want to point out as well. And then I just kind of want to almost like put on my political um, comms consultant nerd hat and just kind of talk a little bit about like how you build an image of a vice president and where I think they've gone wrong and maybe some places where I think um, they, you know, inevitably they'll get this right, but some places where I think they can tweak how they are positioning um, Vice President Harris and they can tweak how they are positioning, um, you know, who she is in the political political ecosystem. So um, why don't we actually start with just looking at our modern vice presidents. And by modern, I'm just going to say, let's go back to 1980. Okay. Ronald Reagan is elected. Um, Actually, you know what? Let's go back to 1976. Jimmy Carter is elected. His his vice president is Walter Mondale. Um, Walter Mondale is a much more known quantity in politics at that time. Um, he actually went on to ultimately uh, run for president himself later on. But, uh, you know, I'm just I'm just trying to pull up some basic biographical information here about, um, you know, Vice President Mondale. He had been a senator from Minnesota for two terms. So 
over a decade in Washington, D.C., someone who certainly knew the space and was very purposely chosen as a running mate for President Carter um, because he actually um, gave him the credibility in market here in D.C., to go and do the things that you need to do as president. You know, Jimmy Carter was elected as an outsider. That was his appeal. That was his appeal um, vis-a-vis, um, you know, the general uh, electorate and, and, you know, the general population of voters out there, which is great. But obviously, when you come into a place like Washington, D.C., it helps to have someone who has some real subject matter expertise for how to get things done, okay? So then Jimmy Carter said, I got to go find a vice president that can credential me in D.C. So he picks Walter Mondale. Okay, great. So Carter picks Mondale. So that's one vice president who is more experienced than their president, particularly in the D.C. part of the job. Okay, number two, Ronald Reagan gets elected in 1980. Reagan's vice president is George H.W. Bush. George H.W. Bush, who, by the way, of course, ran against Reagan for the nomination. Bush was a former CIA director. He was a former member of Congress. He was a former head of the Republican National Committee. George H.W. Bush was incredibly well-known in D.C., much more well-known in D.C. than Ronald Reagan. Yes, Ronald Reagan was an actor. He had a big platform as the governor of California. But Bush was the D.C. guy. So, again, you have a president who is, I won't call him inexperienced, this man was 65 years old and had been the governor of California for 10 years and was nationally known, um, you know, uh, much before his time in politics, but he was certainly new to D.C. He was an outsider. That was a part of his appeal. But he chose a vice president to give him credibility in the marketplace and to credential him. So that's what he did. So Reagan picks Bush. They do two terms, Okay. I want to talk about then Bush gets elected in 88. He picks Dan Quayle. That's a diversion. Dan Quayle was not more experienced than George W. Bush, uh, rather George H.W. Bush. You want to know why? Because George H.W. Bush, much like President Biden, was somewhat seen as a transition um, uh, president. He was going to continue the Reagan legacy, a little bit like President Biden was going to continue the Obama legacy and the Obama work. So they picked somebody that could go and be a bridge and an an older gentleman at that point at President Bush, President H.W. Bush. And he chose Dan Quayle as a bridge to the next generation of what they thought was going to be Republican politicians. Of course, it didn't quite work out that way with Dan Quayle for a number of reasons. Um, The party kind of changed and also wasn't exactly the most impressive public figure. But that's a diversion, right? So put a bookmark in that. 1988 to 1992, Bush quail. Okay, go to 1992. Bill Clinton gets elected. His vice president is Al Gore. Al Gore, son of a multiple term um, senator in the U.S. Senate, himself a sitting U.S. senator, someone who essentially was born and raised in Washington, D.C., someone who grew up in government and around government and who was very well known, and whose family is very well known. Bill Clinton is an outsider. Nobody knows him. He's from Arkansas. Right. So, again, you've got an outsider president who picks a vice president that is credentialed in the marketplace. Go to 2000. George W. Bush, an outsider, 
Yes, his father was president and people knew the name George Bush from his father, but George W. Bush was an outsider. He'd been the governor of Texas, I think, for that by that point, for five or six years, and really was not a credentialed inside D.C. political player. Um, actually, that's probably a, a little bit less fair for George W. Bush because he actually did a lot of political handling for his father and was, was known. But really, he had built his political career in Texas. He wasn't a former member of Congress. He actually ran for Congress and lost, but wasn't a former member of Congress, wasn't a former senator, wasn't somebody who spent all of his time in Washington, D.C. He really left D.C. to kind of start his family and to, you know, he was the president of the Texas Rangers and had business interests in Texas, kind of left D.C. and was not really an entity in D.C. for about 15 years before he became president or 12 years or something like that. But you get the point. This is somebody who was new to D.C., and then who does he pick? He picks Dick Cheney. Um, Dick Cheney, former Secretary of Defense, okay? Also, former member of Congress, very well-known in D.C., someone who could credential him in D.C. He's the outsider. He needs someone who could credential him. Okay, let's keep going. Barack Obama, 2008. Of course, he's an outsider. History-making president. Someone who had only been a one-term senator, not even a complete term, and who had been in the Illinois State House five years before he was president. Obviously, someone who did not have a big base inside Washington, D.C. Who does he pick? Joe Biden, who was at that time going on probably his fifth or sixth term in the U.S. Senate. Very well known inside D.C. He had been a senator since he was 30 years old. This is an older gentleman, okay, who was very well-known, very well-credentialed in D.C. Barack Obama, I'm the outsider. I need a vice president who's an insider, who can credential me, who can go up to the Hill and negotiate and go up to the Hill and have conversations and have connections that I don't have. Almost in a chief of staff function, which I want to talk about in a second. And then let's go to President Trump, obviously, who was clearly an outsider, um, both to D.C. and also to the planet. And he picks Mike Pence, Indiana governor, yes, but also former member of Congress, someone who's very well known to the kind of Republican um, base here in Washington, D.C., someone who's very well credentialed, who could go up, and particularly in the case of President Trump, who was such an outlier and um, who, I mean, you know, look, we, we all experienced the Trump years. You know what I'm talking about, Okay who was very different and very much not a creature of Washington, D.C., needed to pick somebody who could credential him in D.C. So he picked Mike Pence, okay? Probably the most, actually, if you just look at the history I just went through, it's probably the most conventional thing he did was pick a vice president like Mike Pence. And then, of course, now you have President Biden and, and um, Vice President Kamala Harris. And the only one of those presidencies that I named that there's a similarity to is George H.W. Bush in 1998 when he picked Dan Quayle as his vice president. Now, I want to be very clear. There is absolutely no comparison that I detect between Dan Quayle and Kamala Harris in political talent, um, in uh, dynacism, in uh, their, their future um, both aspirations and also their ceilings. I don't see any similarity between these two individuals. Kamala Harris, I think... Um, even even some of her harshest critics, I think, would would acknowledge 
she has a much higher political ceiling than Dan Quayle ever did. Dan Quayle was going to be nobody's president, and that was clear pretty quickly. Okay? The only similarity is that they are diversions from the modern vice presidency. And I just went back to 1976. That's 45 years of presidents. Okay? And I could probably even go back further than that. Um, even if you go back to, you know, you go back to Jerry Ford. Well, Ford and Rockefeller were different because it was a different, you know, it was... Ford had taken over for Nixon, uh, you know, Nixon was a little bit more like Bush and Biden. But then you go to Kennedy and Johnson, and guess what? Kennedy and Johnson, very similar um, to, to the phenomenon I'm talking about here. So anyways, uh, but you go back 45 years, there's only one presidency that's similar to the one that we're in right now. And it's George H.W. Bush with Dan Quayle as his vice president. So what does that tell you? Typically, one, we've elected outsiders, <clears throat> or at least people who have been able to position themselves and sell themselves as outsiders. And the second piece of that is, normally, the thought process and the MO with picking a vice president is pick somebody who rounds you off and credentials you in D.C., credentials you in government, can go and do some of the tough work of governing that you can't do because you're Barack Obama, nobody knows you. Because you are Ronald Reagan. You are this kind of scary outsider at that point. And that's what a lot of people viewed him as. Um, a lot of people viewed Reagan very similarly to viewed Trump, honestly. If you go back and actually look at some of the reporting. But if you're Ronald Reagan, you're a scary outsider. Nobody knows who you are. They don't know what you're going to do. You're not predictable. So you go and you pick somebody who can soothe the concerns of the kind of D.C. chattering class and the governing class in D.C., and that's what happened, okay? This didn't happen with this presidency. President Biden said, I don't need somebody who has decades of experience in national government. That does not mean that, you know, Vice President Harris doesn't bring a lot of experience to the table. She certainly spent a lot of time as Attorney General of California, which is a big position. She spent um, a term as Senator from California. Um, a big position. I mean, she's she's been on the national scene, or she's been uh, she's had awareness to to Democrats nationally for over a decade, uh, maybe even longer, depending on um, your level of political engagement. But she's not a known quantity in D.C. Um, she's not someone that has relationships with people like Mitch McConnell. She doesn't have relationships with even like Chuck Schumer. You know, governing relationships like that. Yes, she served in the caucus with Chuck Schumer, but she's not viewed as somebody who is a power player in that regard. Her power is in her political power and how she represented California and what she represents to a new generation of Democrats. That's her power, and that's the, the kind of superpower that she brings to the Biden-Harris administration. But it's not governing know-how, okay? And, and that might sound harsh, and that's, that's not intended to, that's just saying what the reality is. That's not why she was chosen. She wasn't chosen necessarily to be a governing partner, to go up to the Hill and to get things done for Vice President Biden. She was chosen because she was a bridge to a new generation of Democrats. And she is the Democratic Party embodied that Joe Biden wants to hand off to when he steps off the stage. Okay, which is all good, but it means it's a different role. She's not going to be the vice president in the way that Mike Pence, Dick Cheney, 
Joe Biden, Al Gore. She, one, just doesn't, I don't believe, have an interest in the job in that way. Nor two, does she have the credentials in the job that way. Her credentials are different. And I bring this up and I'm harping on this because I think that's a big part of the reason why there's been such a difficulty in landing what the vice president's um, public image is in this moment. Um, it's a harder, it's a different job. Okay. Now we're in the summer here. We've been talking a lot about infrastructure. The president's first order of business was to get that big COVID relief package done. There was a, a kind of a, you know, under the radar um, kind of, uh, you know, international piece of legislation related to, uh, you know, competition with China that passed. These are all very kind of, you know, I mean, they, they are positioned as kind of national issues and, and they certainly are, but they're in the weeds kind of DC processes. Um, and the value that she would provide to the president in those moments would be, hey, go up to Capitol Hill and sit in a room with Speaker Pelosi and Leader McCarthy and Leader McConnell and Leader Schumer. Go sit with them for 10 hours and hammer out an agreement on this part of the infrastructure talks or, hey, voting, uh, voting rights, um, you know, the For the People Act is stalled out right now because Republicans are um, filibustering it like they filibuster everything, like they filibustered the, you know, the January 6th commission and, you know, like they would probably filibuster if you tried to rename a, you know, a, a courthouse after someone who spent, you know, even five minutes as a Democrat, right? They filibuster everything. But anyways, the, the, the vice president typically in the past would be the type of person who would go up to the Hill and, hey, let me go and hammer this out. Let me go and sit down and roll my sleeves up and like dig through the legislative minutia and figure out how you get this done. I'm sure Kamala Harris has the ability to do that. She was a senator for a number of years, and she knows that body in terms of just she understands how it works, but she is not someone who is viewed as a kind of legislative um, fixer, right? That Again, that, that's not why she was chosen to be the running mate for Joe Biden. And that's not the role she's going to play, both publicly or behind the scenes. The president thinks he can play that role, which he has. He's the one that's been calling people up to the White House and that's been working the phones with whether it was during infrastructure with Senator Capito, the Republican um, junior senator from West Virginia, or um, working with Susan Collins before that, or trying to get Lisa Murkowski on board, or even on his side, trying to get Senator Manchin to relent on the filibuster or to support the For the People Act. Right. The president's doing all that wrangling. He and his team are doing that and they're very capable of doing that. But in the past, that's a job that the vice president would have been dispatched to do in the modern vice presidency. OK, when President Bush was trying to get the Patriot Act passed, who was deputized on that? It was Dick Cheney. Right. When, uh, you know, uh, President Clinton um, you know, when they were, you know, there's a big joke about how, like, you know, people think like Al Gore said he created the Internet. No, he didn't. But, you know, one of the things that he was kind of deputized to do was kind of work on like telecom issues really at the beginning of what we kind of think of as the modern in Internet. He worked on a lot of those issues that he campaigned on that in part. He was asked to do that by President Clinton at that time. It made sense for him to do that because he was very experienced in government, right, and in governing. So that made a lot of sense for him to do at that time. 
Um, I can go on and on. In in 2010, uh, when the Affordable Care Act uh, was being passed and President Obama was working very closely with uh, a much bigger majority in the Senate, but also still a very loyal Republican opposition, Vice President Biden played a major role in getting that over the hump. When there was a fiscal cliff a couple of years later, right? Vice President Biden was on the phone and up on Capitol Hill all the time with then Speaker Boehner and then uh, Majority Leader McConnell working, trying to get Republicans on board. That's part of the reason why people thought that Biden and McConnell would maybe have a better opportunity for a relationship than other um, presidents have, have, other Democratic presidents rather, have had. So, you know, the modern vice presidency really has been more adjacent to the job of a chief of staff um, or a kind of senior political consultant, um, you know, as it's been imagined by our most recent presidents, because our most recent presidents have been outsiders. Kamala Harris is a diversion from that because she is less experienced than the president she's serving with. And the only comparison to that is George H.W. Bush and Dan Quayle. And I think that's why there has been such a difficulty in that transition. I also think there are fair criticisms about the kind of maybe lack of imagination related to her staff um, and how they're thinking about her public image. The vice president certainly has to take responsibility for what you would have to call a pattern of staff dissension um, in her multiple kind of public roles um, and, and kind of, you know, campaigns and um, you know, offices that she has overseen. Um, that is something that, you know, it's kind of a bottom line thing. Um, if you're the common denominator in all these situations, like there is some responsibility you have to take. And I think there's a fair critique of the, the vice president. I also think we would all be loath to not point out what that LA Times story pointed out about the fact that this woman is making history every single day. She walks through those gates at the White House and walks to the Naval Observatory where the vice president's residence is. She is the first to do this. The first woman, the first woman of color, first black, first Asian. There is a tax that she has to pay related to this work that is really hard to compute. And even as someone like myself who, look, I do this for a living as someone who is a pundit who observes this and who comments and critiques these types of things, I have to constantly check myself. Okay. There's a lot of talk about privilege these days. And look, I certainly know what it is to be a person of color um, in uncommon spaces, but I don't know what it is to be a woman um, in an uncommon space. And there are probably a lot of um, challenges that she is being met with that men would not be. I don't remember the process stories about what is Mike Pence's portfolio. I don't remember those. Now, part of that is maybe a bit of a compliment to the vice president and that there is more expected of her because she has a higher ceiling. As I said, I think she has probably a higher ceiling pretty much than any vice president we've had. And I'm just thinking here off the top of my head. I don't know if there is a vice president we've had that that has the you know, kind of the, what I would say is like the political skill and reserve that she does. I think there is a level that she can reach that everybody knows um, is really, really high. And that's really way above what she's reached at this point. Um, to be, to make it a kind of a crude sports analogy. I mean, 
she is a developing, um, you know, uh, athlete that has not reached their their peak yet. Um, she's reached high heights. She's obviously accomplished a lot, but there's even higher heights she can reach. So that's a compliment to the vice president that I think part of the critique is I think a lot's expected of her. But I also think that we have to be fair as people who are observing this and who, who are watching this, that we've never done this before as a country. Okay. It was always going to be hard and harder for her. And, you know, generally speaking, you kind of want to be the person after the person as opposed to the person, meaning it's probably going to be a lot easier for the second woman, either president or vice president or the second woman vice president. We would have our first woman president whenever that happens, but it'll be more it'll be easier for the second person in that position than the first. You know, Barack Obama faced untold challenges that we really couldn't compute as president because. You had people in government that wouldn't work with him. I mean, let me just spell it out for you. Mitch McConnell did not see anything in common with Barack Obama. And it wasn't just because one was from Chicago and one was from Louisville. Okay? (laughs) He saw, there's a reason why he saw more commonality with Joe Biden than he did with Barack Obama. You know, point blank. Barack Obama was a former senator. Mitch McConnell served with him too. Okay, just like Joe Biden, by the way, just like Kamala Harris, there's a reason why he saw more in common with Joe Biden. Yes, part of it was longevity, but another part of it is because he's another old white guy. That's just something we have to say out loud, and I think it's something that's fair to say. But I do think the, the vice president and her team have to take control of the narrative here. I guess the last part of this that I would just talk about is what I think are some of the common mistakes that I've been seeing from you know, the, the folks in the, the orbit of the vice president, vice president Harris, and have a lot of respect for the folks around her. I agree with a lot of the defense of Tina Florinoy that I've seen. Um, I think, um, you know, while I have not met or worked with her personally, have heard nothing but great things about her and have heard them from people who I greatly respect. Um, someone like Mignon Moore, who I had the great fortune to work with in 2016 on the Hillary Clinton campaign. Um, you know, who, by the way, is in some of the recent reporting is positioned as an influencer in Harris world. I think that's a good thing um, that they have someone like that who um, is a part of the the apparatus there. Right. Um, but someone like that has a very high opinion of Miss Flournoy. That's great. Um, that gives me a lot of confidence, frankly, um, uh, you know, as someone who maybe doesn't have quite the relationship with her. Um, I know there's some other really talented individuals around the vice president. Um, you know, uh, people like Rahini Koslagu, um, someone who I had the great fortune of working with earlier in my career. Um, you know, Simone Sanders, never got a chance to work with her, but certainly have a high regard for what she brings to the table and, um, you know, some of the great work she's done in, in past stops in her career. Um, Ashley Etienne, someone who is a former, um, you know, um, you know, I guess, uh, advisor for Speaker Pelosi and uh, Whip Clyburn and just is, is really well respected and well regarded um, in democratic politics. Right. These are really talented individuals, um, talented women, by the way, um, that the vice president has purposely empowered. That's a good thing. And she's got smart people around her and they'll figure it out. Um, I think the thing that I am seeing that they probably need to do a little bit more of is a little bit more show and a little bit less tell. 
And by that, I mean, I hear a lot of pronouncements and a lot of, I see a lot of, you know, kind of what I call like press release style public image making here where, you know, and I guess a part of this too, I'll, I'll kind of talk about this in tandem here is the, the president and his team or the administration at large has decided that some of the agenda items that they are giving to the vice president are like, I mean, they're kind of laughably like they're big. Like, I don't want to say they're approaching like Jared Kushner territory where it's like Jared's going to fix government and also solve the Middle East crisis um, and all, like and also hire everybody. It's like what? Like Jared's going to do all of that. There's a there's a little bit of that like to a much less and I'm being somewhat tongue in cheek and funny there. But there's a little bit of that going on, I think, with the vice president where it's like, well, she's going to fix cybersecurity and she's also going to fix um, immigration, although that was later clarified to be the root causes of immigration. She's going to go and she's going to work on that. And then she's also going to get the Voting Rights Act passed. I'm like, man, that's that's a lot. That's like, <laughs> I mean, people have been trying to figure out immigration for 50 years like that would like. The, the 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 political graveyards are littered with the careers of people who have fallen at the feet of immigration politics. That's that's a tough job. I mean, cybersecurity, man, like that's a tough gig. And we got the vice president on that. Like, I agree with the president's faith in her. But those are some tough items and tough topics. And, um, you know, some of the other things that I mentioned, the voting rights act, like she's going to get Joe, Joe Manchin to back down off of his like, you know, his love affair, his ode to the filibuster, like she's going to be able to do it. Like, I'm not saying that as a lack of faith in her. I'm saying that as like an acknowledgement of political reality. Like, man, that's, that's something else. But the bigger point, my silliness aside is, um, there's, there's a lot of work. There's a big agenda. And, it, and it's clear that the president wants the vice president here to be not just an equal partner, but a partner, like period, like someone who can go and who can, um, you know, uh, you know, really be an able surrogate and can advance the work of the Biden administration. I think there's a clear desire to do that. I, mean, I think everybody is is acting in good faith here, right? I mean, the stories are what they are. Um, bad stories happen all the time. We call these process stories um, as political staffers, and like there's gonna there's gonna be bad Biden process stories that come out too. There's bad process stories about every White House. Of both parties like that's just that's the game that we're in so those things don't really spook me i think what spooks me though is maybe the last part of the conversation here which is i don't see a lot of imagination with how they are positioning the vice president as a public official let me explain a little bit so you know the vice president is i think again someone who is maybe not as credentialed as a fixer in dc as someone who can kind of go in and do the hard work. I think most people know she's incredibly talented and she's clearly good at earning the trust of voters, right? Those are good things. But like the actual levers of government and doing the stuff, I think that there are still things to be proven. And again, all the caveats included about how there are different tests for women in public service than they are for men. Absolutely agree, okay? But in the bottom line business of politics, in order for the vice president harris experiment to work she has to be somebody that can be packaged and sold to the american electorate and that can carry the democratic ticket okay and part of doing that i think is really crafting a public image that works for her well beyond her time as vice president and my long wind up here is really about just the style that they are 
positioning her with. I, I thought a lot of the ways that they positioned her was kind of cult of personality, um, was, you know, focusing on the, the history of the moment. And there is certainly a place for that. Like, hey, I was caught up in it. I was doing coverage on TV and I was caught up in the, the majesty of her um, stepping into this role and the history it made and thinking about people like my mom um, who are watching someone who looks like her stepping into this role. That's powerful and that's important. And there's certainly a place for that. But there's got to be more. And I think the storytelling around the vice president should be a lot more about what she's doing behind the scenes. Instead of putting out a pronouncement and talking about, well, she's going to focus on cybersecurity and she's doing this big public pomp and circumstance thing with cybersecurity folks are she's going to the she's going to Guatemala and she's going to do this big public show in Guatemala. How about have her on the phone, which I'm sure she is, but have her work in the phones with people in the state department or work in the phones with, um, you know, um, experts, um, uh, of central and South America. And how about telling the story through validators or leaking out stuff about, Hey, like the vice president is really engaged here is really rolled up their sleeves or on the voting rights issue. Like that's a good time just as a comms guy for a story to like roll out about how, you know, one of the things we're hearing, you know, a, a reporter like some of the reporters I cited before, uh, that, w- that would be a good time for a story that kind of reads something to the effect of one of the things we're hearing a lot from Capitol Hill is how the vice president has been burning up the phones uh, to the to the majority leader's office. He's talked to her at least five times in the last week about how to get voting rights over the edge. I haven't seen that. And that doesn't mean it's not happening. I'm sure it is happening. But that's not how the story's being told. And I think that's a very, you know, it's look, and it's, it's always easy to kind of say this from the outside. I'm not in the arena on her team. So it's probably easier for me to like offer these like, you know, I, I always try to I always try to acknowledge like and check kind of, you know, my BS at the door a little bit. Right. Like which we all have, um, which we all bring to the table. Like it's always easier when you're not in the job. But that feels like a pretty. Um, easy tweak in terms of their approach to kind of talk about what she's doing as opposed to um, what she's supposed to be doing or what we what we think she's supposed to be doing. It's like, what is the actual application of the job that she is exhibiting every day? Is she on the phones? Is she meeting with people? Is she bringing in like immigrant families to the Naval Observatory? Do that as second source reporting, not as, hey, we're doing a big public pronouncement. And she's going to do a big thing at the border. It just, again, it just feels very, it's very, it's it's very um, showy. And I think the show needs to be like, you kind of need to like show your math a little bit as opposed to kind of just hunting for the headline. Like, I think it's less about like that. And it's more about kind of the, the blood and guts of what she's doing to actually administer the job every day. And And I think if you just look at the history of how, reporting on public figures like this goes, I think that's what they're going for. You want the same um, public profile for her that Vice President Biden, then Vice President Biden had under President Obama, where all you heard were these stories about, you know, Vice President Biden has been on the phone with Speaker Boehner three times today alone. He's met with Leader McConnell and moderate Democrats you know, 
once this week and has been on the phone with them, you know, on a rolling basis, trying to get, you know, the, the, you know, the, uh, debt limit agreement to come, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of mimicking the headlines and the, you know, uh, don't fact check me on exactly what they read, but that was the tone and the tenor of the coverage. And that's what the vice president and, and her team should be going for. I think humbly submitted. Um, so on the off chance that they're listening to this podcast, um, I guess I would say a couple of things. One, um, you know, it's not as bad as the stories are being played out to be. I think um, there's some natural um, frustration um, that's going to come with that kind of story coming out. Um, I think that she's got good, talented people around her. Um, I think she'll continue to have good counsel. Um, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about kind of a little spate of bad stories in the middle of a hot summer um, after the honeymoon breaks, right? Like that just kind of happens. That's a, that comes with the position. I think I saw something where the second gentleman, Doug Emhoff said something to the effect of, um, this is kind of something that comes with the territory. I completely agree with that. Like there's just going to be a scrutiny that comes with the territory. And there's probably an unfair part of that that comes with the territory of making history the way that she makes history every single day. Um, so one, you know, this is recoverable. Um, I think there's some some things that probably are already underway to kind of correct this. I think it's been encouraging that publicly some of the president's staff has been behind her, but I also think it's been telling that they felt the need to do that. That that kind of shows that they they feel that there's an importance in getting it right in this moment. Um, so that's one. Two, again, I would put forward some of my ideas about how to change that public narrative around. Um, the vice president's work and her value to the administration and reimagine a little bit how you want her to be viewed. Okay. Publicly broadly as a, as an elected official um, who is probably one day going to be at the top of a ticket trying to carry Democrats over the finish line, but also to folks like me, to influencers, right. Who are, you know, in a lot of cases, maybe a little bit too much shaping opinions like you, you, you need to you need to be able to demonstrate that that there's some evolution and some growth in how this woman is doing her job. Um, and again, all the caveats included about um, there's a fundamental unfairness about how she probably is treated. And then just three, I just would elevate for everybody how much of a, you know, a course correction and a diversion she is from the modern vice president like there's an obvious way that she is a diversion in her person in the fact that she is a woman and that she is a, a person of color of black and asian descent that's obvious but the second part of that is stylistically and what she brings to the table and what she credentials this administration with is so fundamentally different than what any other vice president um, has done in recent history and i think that's worth pointing out and that's worth remembering as we are critiquing her and we are thinking about her future. Um, so, um, you know, in short, everybody should relax. I think they'll figure out the Vice President Harris thing. And I think there's a very good chance that um, she will have a very, very successful career um, as the standard bearer of the Democratic Party when her time comes. Um, I get the sense that this will be a big priority over the next few months for the Harris team, but also for the entire Biden administration. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. Again, we are presented by Playware, P-L-A-A. Playware, go to PressPlay.com. It's more than fashion. It's a feeling. That's 
P-L-A-A, Playware. It's been so great to have this conversation and be able to join you all again. Um, I know the episodes can sometimes be scarce, but I always want to make sure I got something good to talk about when I'm on here. No guest this week. Hope you enjoyed that as well. My guy Roscoe is sitting right up under me and has been very patient as we're about to go outside, but has also been very quiet. So it's going to be a good morning for Roscoe. He's going to get some treats. He's going to have a good time. Look at him. He's excited now just because I said that. But again, it's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. Thanks again for listening this week. We'll have more to share in the, in the coming weeks, more guests, working on some, some great guests and some great conversations for us to have. But in the meantime, God bless and take care.